Well, we've been going through a series in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to continue picking that up next week in Luke chapter 18. But as you can see in your bulletin or from the title slide, what I'd like for you to do today is turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 4. Now, Colossians is to the right of the Gospel of Luke. You'll pass John and Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Just remember General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. We're looking at Colossians chapter 4 today because God continues to bless our church with growth. It's a wonderful opportunity. Uh, We call those happy headaches here. They're great problems, uh, but they can create challenges as well. So we're going to be talking about something an opportunity that we have that we're actually going to vote on as a congregation in a few weeks on November 25th. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. But first, I want us to focus on what Colossians 4, 2 through 6 tells us. It says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I also have been imprisoned in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Now, as we read here in verses 2 through 3, where Paul talks about open doors, what he's talking about is open doors to evangelism to the good news of the gospel. The word gospel literally means the good news. And Paul uses this metaphor of open doors numerous times in the scriptures. We find it in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 through 9, where he says, But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective service is open to me. 2 Corinthians two twelve, he says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, a door was opened to me, for, opened for me in the Lord. And in Acts 14, 27, and when they had arrived and gathered uh, the church together, they began reporting all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3, 8, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. As God gives us these open doors of opportunity, one of the things that we need to notice here is that he says we need to open our mouths. Open our mouths in prayer, praying that God would then open the hearts of the people that we're going to share the good news with. Before we talk to someone about God, we need to talk to God about that person. The Bible is clear that God is the one who draws all men and women to himself. And what happens sometimes when we share our faith is we're trying to kick the door open. We're trying to force the good news of the gospel in. And what what Paul is telling us here is the very first part of evangelism is prayer. Paul tells us in verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. This word translated as devote or in some of your Bibles as steadfast means to persevere, not to quit to give constant attention to, to be in constant readiness for. The same word is used in Mark chapter 3, verse 9, where Jesus told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the multitudes. Jesus was there on the seashore. He was being pushed back into the water, and he wanted a boat ready for an instant to be able to step into and push out so he could continue preaching. The, the boat was there, ready. And as we read about being ready in an instant to pray, most of us would say, well, I've got that down pretty good. I'm handed that test. I don't know what what to do with it. I don't know what to deal with that crisis. And we go to God in prayer. But it's not just about an instantaneous ability to go to God in prayer. Remember that it also means to persevere, not to quit. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 through 18, to pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Prayer is to be a constant part of a believer's life. It's not only the way that we uh, fellowship with God and commune with Christ and tap into the power of the Holy Spirit. It's also the way that we get God's work done here on earth. Jesus tells us in John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much pr- fruit. For apart from me... You can do nothing. 
He doesn't say you can do some things. He says nothing. God is our power. God is the one who enables us to, to share, especially in terms of his, his word. Uh, this is why prayer is so important in what we're doing. Another important word Paul uses here is to be alert or watchful. An example of what it means to watch and pray is found in Nehemiah 4 and 9 where it says, But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. You recall when they were rebuilding the walls of the city, uh, there were enemies that were trying to stop the work, and Nehemiah says, We prayed and asked for God's favor on the work, but they also armed themselves with swords and spears and had sentries and watchmen ready to fight at any moment. Sometimes when people pray to God, uh, they, they think it's this passive endeavor where we let go and we let God do everything. But prayer is not where we just let go and let God do everything. It's, it's like when a farmer prays and says, God, would you give me a good harvest? Would you help the weather to be favorable? Would you send the rain in the right amount at the right time? And he says, amen with a hoe, right? He plows the land. He plants the seed. He harvests the crops. He's praying, but he also has a part in the process. And when we pray for God to open up opportunities, we are also to be actively involved. It's not enough for us to sit back and say, God, would you let me share the good news with my, my classmate or my coworker at school or the person I'm going to see on the street? We actually have to take those opportunities when they come. You ever felt that prompting of the Holy Spirit and you just go, no, I don't think so. And you don't share the good news. This is what is being involved here. This is what's being talked about. We heard earlier in the announcements that tonight we have Trunk or Treat uh, going on out at Stone Oak. This is a wonderful opportunity where there are going to be several hundred people from the community coming on the property. They're not just going to play games and get candy. They're going to interact with God's people from, from Wayside. They're going to hear the good news of the gospel. There are going to be tracks. There are going to be opportunities to, to share with people uh, as you're interacting with them. This is one of the opportunities that he tells us to seize in verse 5. Now, as we do these things, our adversary Satan doesn't like the work of God being done. And so the Bible tells us clearly he will oppose us. Uh, we're told there in 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is why we're told that we need to be like a sentry. One who is alert and awake. First Thessalonians 5, 6 tells us, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. This, this Greek word translated as alert or watchful literally means keeping awake or being active. Now that doesn't mean that you pull all night or seven days a week that you never go to sleep. But what it does mean is that we have this, this, this watchfulness where we're thoughtfully engaged in what we're doing, Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 26, 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It doesn't mean that we don't, you know, people always say, do I close my eyes when I pray? Does it count if I open my eyes? You know, this isn't saying keep your eyes awake when you're praying, but it's more like, I wonder if you've ever been reading through a book. And as you're turning pages, you're turning pages, and you suddenly realize, I don't remember the last 10 pages I read. Have you ever had that experience? You're like, I'm just so tired, or I'm not focused. You're, you're, you're reading the words, you're flipping the pages, but you're not engaged. And what he's talking about here is where we're to be not just going through the motions, where we're not just mindlessly repeating words. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 7, and when you are praying... Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. What we're told here in Colossians 4 is to get away from a dull mechanical recitation of our prayers. It's one of the reasons he says to couple thanksgiving with your prayers. If you stop and you think about what you're thankful for, it, it not only gives you something to focus on where you say, God, thank you. Thank you for all the things you've been faithful to answer in the past. It also helps you in the way you pray. 
Next week, when we come back to Luke chapter 18, I'm going to give you the illustration of a prayer journal I had in college. And in it, what I would do is I would highlight uh, with a marker whenever a prayer was answered. And as I would pray through my journal, what it would do is it would encourage me to keep going. There were times that I would hit a dry spell where it seemed like God was not answering any prayers. And I'd become discouraged. And then I would see something highlighted. And I'd go, oh, yeah. That was something I prayed for for years. And you answered it, God. And it was a way to say thank you. And it encouraged me to keep praying as well for those yet-to-be-answered prayers. As you look at Colossians 4.3, we see that Paul was a prisoner as he's writing this. And yet he emphasizes the need to pray with thanksgiving. He says, pray with thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for me as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. You know, Paul could have asked him to pray that the prison doors would be opened. But instead he prays for open opportunities for the mystery of Christ to go forth. Paul was more concerned about getting the gospel out than he was about getting out of prison. If you were Paul at this moment sitting in a prison cell, would you be more concerned about being free or being faithful? Paul was more concerned about being faithful. The very thing he's asking them to pray for is what caused his arrest in the first place. It's why he's in jail. And he says, I have no intention of giving up on on the ministry you've given me or of changing the message. And we know from the book of Philippians that he remained faithful. Philippians 1, 12 through 14 tells us, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment and the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. He says, The royal guard is hearing the good news, and it's being carried even up into Caesar's household. And he says, it's not only this, he says, and most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. You know, as we're reading this, I want you to remember, this is the Apostle Paul. This is this brilliant Torah scholar who came to faith in Christ, who was then used to to be one of the leaders in the early church. God used him to write much of the New Testament books that we have. And if Paul the Apostle says, I need you to pray for me, how much more do we need prayer? You know, have you ever gotten an email or a prayer letter from a missionary? And they say, will you pray for me? Will you join my team as a prayer supporter? And some may look at that and say, oh, they just really want my money. They don't care about the prayer. They just want my money. I'll tell you, from all the friends I have who are missionaries, they will tell you they would rather have your prayers than your money because they know that it is the prayer that is the power source of all that they're able to do. It's the same thing uh, when it comes to me in ministry. I hope that you're praying for me as your pastor. I hope you're praying for the other men and women who are on our team here. And for those who are your leaders in small groups and ABFs and your kids' uh, small group leaders, there's a saying that if there are prayerless pews, there's powerless pulpits. If there's no prayer in the pew, there's no power in the pulpit. Prayer is how we plug in to God's power source, and it's how we're able to do ministry. So as you think in terms of your own life, who's praying for you? Who are your prayer partners? Who are the people that you've asked to to pray for you at work or at school? Who are the people that are supporting you in prayer? What about your kids? Who's praying for your kids? Parents, are you doing that? Are you praying not only when they're here at home with you, but when they go away to college or when they leave to serve in the military or they go out into the, the workplace? Are you praying that God would raise up others, a few strong Christians to come around your son or daughter? so that they have support and encouragement. These are the kind of things that we need to be praying for. As we share the gospel, we see prayer is our number one need. And then Paul says, number two, the thing that he needs next is that he would be clear in how he shares God's word. We see in verse 4 that he says that, that he would know how to share the gospel. There was a husband who was teaching his wife how to drive. 
And as he was sitting over in the, the passenger seat, she's there behind the wheel kind of looking at everything. And he, and he said, turn the doohickey there and shift the thingamajig while pushing down on the doodad. I'm teaching my daughter to drive right now, and I don't tell her those things. I say, okay, you see the pedal, not the, that's the gas. That's, you know, you explain it in detail, don't you? And you say, don't start the car yet. Let's make sure you know what everything is. So if we take such care in explaining things like that, why don't we do that with the gospel? I think sometimes we're like that husband who says, well, I know what everything is, and so it doesn't matter. You know, people should know what I'm talking about. But you have to remember when you're sharing the good news with a non-believer, they, they may have zero church background. They may have no understanding of anything that you're talking about. I've actually talked to people who don't even know who Adam and Eve are. They've never heard of the Garden of Eden. They've never heard of the first man and woman. We live in a biblically illiterate world, so you can't assume that everybody knows what you're talking about. So as you share the gospel, don't assume things. Don't use big theological words. You don't have to talk about the propitiation unless you're going to explain what propitiation is. And, and, and don't get off on rabbit trails. It's so easy to be drawn off the message of the gospel and get into arguments about various things. Keep the main thing the main thing. When I share the gospel with somebody, I begin by asking essentially three diagnostic questions. I'll say to a person, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven or hell? So I want to know where they think they're going. I've actually had people who tell me point blank, I'm going to hell. And that's great. I know exactly where we're starting, right? But you'll often have people say, well, I think I'm going to heaven. And I say, okay, question number two. How sure are you on a scale of 1 to 100% that you will go to heaven? Somebody who fully understands the gospel of grace and things will say, well, I'm 100% sure. And I'll tell you in a moment question number three that helps you to know. But others, most people will say, well, I'm pretty sure. You know, I may be 70%, 80 90 95% sure I'm going to go. And then I say, and so when you get to the gate of heaven and God says, why should I let you in? What would you say to them? Now, I know that the Bible tells us our name is in the book of life. And, and God isn't going to ask us a question. Second Corinthians 5, 8 says we're going to be, when we're absent from the body as a believer, we're home with the Lord. But I'm talking to somebody trying to determine, are you a believer? So I want to know what they're trusting in. And what do you normally hear when you say, what would you say to God? Why you should let you into heaven? Well, I've lived a pretty good life. I've gone to church. I helped that little old lady across the street. They begin to list their resume, right? So you know they're trusting in their works, not what... God's son did when he went to the cross and died for us. So given that information, I can usually figure out whether they need the gospel or not and where to start. And so then what I will do is I will say to the person, can I have five minutes of your time? And be respectful of it. If you say, can I have five minutes of your time? Don't spend two hours unless they want to. But I'll say, can I have five minutes of your time to show you in the Bible how you can be 100% sure that when you die, you will be welcomed home into heaven? And I've only had a handful of people out of thousands upon thousands of times sharing the good news where somebody said, no, I don't have time. And so then what I will do is I will take the Bible and I will open it to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. And as I do that, I often, if I'm able, I will actually put the Bible in their hand and I will point to the verse and I'll say, can you read Romans chapter 3? So many people in society have never physically held a Bible in their life. And as they hold the Bible and as they read God's word, God's word is speaking to them rather than you preaching at them. And oftentimes you'll see them say, oh, I want to keep reading. You know, this is good. I want to see what else is here. And so what does Romans 3.23 tell us? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, as I told you before, we need to define our terms. If you say uh, to somebody, well, the way, what is sin? You can say, well, as Christians, we know what that is. Well, I'll define sin for them. I'll tell them that the original Greek word for sin was an archery term. And what the word sin literally means is to miss the mark. So I give them an illustration. If I give you 100 arrows and I have you shoot 100 arrows at the bullseye, and 99 of the arrows hit the bullseye, but one of them hits just outside of the mark, what the judge would write on your target is you sinned. You missed the mark. You were less than perfect. We would say 99 out of 100 is pretty good. But what God says is, you've fallen short of my standard of perfection. Remember, for all have sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. That's 100% perfection. So I say to them, have you ever sinned? Have you ever lied, cheated, cussed, taken a cookie when your mom or dad told you not to? You, keep, you go down the list and pretty quickly you'll get everybody to agree, yeah, I haven't been perfect, I've sinned. And I say, well, that's a big problem. And then you flip over to Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Again, I'm having them read that. And I'll say, do you, do you have a job? Do you work? And most say, yeah. And I say, so when you go to work, you earn a paycheck. Those are your wages. And so what happens is when we say to God, I want to earn my way into heaven. Remember, you asked the question, what are you trusting in? Well, I've been pretty good. And I'll say, what you've earned by how you live your life is not entrance into heaven. You've earned separation from God because you're a sinner. You've fallen short of his standard of perfection. Now, to, again, illustrate that more clearly, depending upon time and how engaged the person is, I may say, have you ever seen the Grand Canyon or a picture of it? I'll say, I want you to think about the Grand Canyon. And if this side we're standing on, this rim of the Grand Canyon represents earth, and the other side of the Grand Canyon is heaven, and there's this big chasm between us, and that's what sin is. It separates us from God. Then I'll say to them, how do we get from earth to heaven? And if they're trusting in how good they've been, the works they do, I say, okay, so for you to get from earth to heaven, what I want you to do is run as fast as you possibly can, and I want you to jump over the chasm and make it to the other side. And I say, are you able to do that? And they look at you and go, are you nuts? It's more than a mile wide across. Nobody can make it. And I say, well, that's what the Bible tells us. We've all sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And so I say, think of the worst person who's ever lived, mass murderer, some, some wicked person. They run right off the edge of earth, and they go straight down. We say they don't even get close to getting to heaven. Now, what happens to them when they hit the bottom? People go, well, they splat, they die. I say, that's death. The second death is what the Bible says is separation from God in a place called hell. So I say, they don't get to heaven. They go uh, to a place of judgment called hell. Now, I say, you've told me you've lived a pretty good life. So you're, you're a better jumper than that person. How far do you think you'd get across? And they may say, I don't know, you know, halfway, you know, three-quarters of the way. And I'm going, you you're, think you're a better jumper than you are, but okay. You, you, but you don't, you don't get there, do you? No. And I say, so when the momentum runs out this way and momentum picks up this way, what happens to you? And they say, well, I guess splat, I die too. I say, that's right. And I say, now let's assume the best person who has ever lived comes along. And, and they try to get to God. And maybe they get farther than anybody else. But remember Romans 3.23 said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody makes it. So it doesn't matter how close they get to the other side, they also fall short and die. And by then, people are normally saying, Well, then how do we get to God? I say, Well, I'm glad you asked. Because in John 3.16, it tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have the gift of eternal life. And so I say, I want you to picture a cross that's more than a mile high. And if you were to take and you were to put the, the bottom of the cross here on earth and you were to lay it across that chasm of sin so the tip is on the other side into heaven, you now have a bridge that you're able to walk across. That's why Jesus said to us in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I say, well, so what God tells us we need to do is to take that step of faith where we trust in what Jesus did for us, not what we've done. And you walk across that cross, you accept his way home to heaven by accepting him as your Savior. And you flip over to Romans 10, 9, which says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. The word confession means to say the same thing as God says. And so what we're saying is, I believe that you're who you said you are, Jesus, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the one who came and went to a cross and died. Why did Jesus die on a cross? The wages of sin is death. Somebody had to pay the penalty that we owed, and that was Jesus Christ. 
And he proved he was God's son because three days later he rose from the dead. Remember, two other people were crucified with Jesus on that hill called Calvary. Two thieves. One accepted Jesus and was told, this day you will be with me in paradise. The other one rejected him and was rejected. But I said the only one who came out of the grave three days later alive physically was Jesus Christ, showing he was who he said he was. And if you will accept his gift, you will be saved. Now, sometimes people will say, well, you don't know me. You don't know the mess I've made in my life. You don't know the things I've done. There's no way God could love me. In which case, you can turn to Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When you were at your worst, when I was at my worst, when we were sinners, when we were far from God, when we were in rebellion against him, it says Jesus died for us. We don't get to heaven based on what we've done. It's what God's son did for us. It's that way home he provided. And then I say to that person, what is keeping you from receiving God's gift to you right now? Remember Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can go to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. And you can ask the person, have you ever received that gift? Have you ever accepted it? Sometimes they'll say, well, you know, I don't know. And you say, well, would you like to know for sure? This isn't about taking a scalp. This is about helping a person see that they are lost, they are in need of a Savior, and that God provided the way home. That is a a clear presentation of the gospel. And as I just shared that with you, someone may be sitting here this morning saying, I never knew that. I've been trusting in coming to church or trying to get to God based upon what I've done. And if for the first time in your life you understand today that you're a sinner and you're lost, you're far from God and separated from him. And today you understand that it's not based upon what you did, but what Jesus did for you when he died on the cross. If you will do what Romans 10, 9 says, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John 1, 12 tells us, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And so if you're here this morning, you've never accepted God's great gift of new life. I invite you to do so. To say to God, God, I'm a sinner. I recognize I'm I I owe a penalty, a penalty of death. And I thank you, Jesus, that you came and you went to the cross and you died for me. Your blood was shed to wash away my sins. And today, Jesus, I accept that great gift of new life. Thank you for making me a part of your family. And if you pray that prayer, it says you will be saved. I'll be at the front after the service. There will be prayer leaders here. I would love to talk to you further if there is something that you don't fully understand about that or would like to know more. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's what God calls on us to share. Now, in terms of of thinking of God's great gift to us, we talked about how we live doesn't earn our salvation, but the way we live can get in the way of the message we're sharing. Sometimes our lives are speaking louder than our lips, and people you work with or go to school or see you at home go, you know, how can I listen to what you're telling me about God when you you don't live in a way that shows that you love him? Now, as I said, that isn't what saves us, but it can affect our our witness. This is why Paul tells us in verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. This word translated as conduct here is the Greek word peripatao. It's a word that literally means to walk. You know, I I warned us earlier about Christianese where we don't use words that mean things to us but not to others. This is where Christians will say, well, my walk with the Lord. And people are like, what are you talking about? Well, this is it. It's how we live. It's, It's how we conduct ourselves. It's what we do. And the way we walk and the way we talk can affect our witness to others. Which is why, again, in this passage, we're told in verse 6 to watch our speech. It says it's always to be seasoned with salt. Salt was a preservative. 
It stood against decay. It enhances flavor. And so what it was saying is that we live in a a dead and dying world. And God calls on us to be the counter to that, to be light in the darkness, to be those who are preservative in the, the dead and decaying world around us. He tells us not only to watch how we walk and talk, but also to make the most of the opportunity. The word for opportunity here is the Greek word ex-agorazo. And what it literally means, it was a market term that means to buy up, to purchase completely. If you're using something like the King James here, you see redeeming the time. And the picture was of a merchant who who saw something and he seized the opportunity. He said, I'm going to buy up that opportunity. I'm going to take it off the market. I'm going to put the resources toward it in order to redeem the time or to to, uh, take it, seize the opportunity that is there. Now, I mentioned earlier at the beginning of my message that God is continuing to bless Wayside Chapel with growth. And I want to talk about an opportunity that we have as a church here. About two and a half years ago, many of you will remember, we as a congregation, if you were here, were talking about needing to expand the seating capacity of our sanctuary. Uh, We were talking about removing the pews that many of you are sitting in today and bringing in and putting in seats. Well, right about that time, God brought a different opportunity to us where a piece of property up in the Stone Oak area of our city Uh, came available for purchase. We had been praying, preparing for many years, looking at the possibility of a multi-site. And so instead of expanding the sanctuary seating capacity, uh, we purchased 19 acres up in Stone Oak uh, that had three buildings on it. And on August 21st of 2016, we opened our multi-site Stone Oak campus up there. And we moved about 200 people up into the northern part of the city uh, where about 25% of our church was already coming from that area. And we did that for two, two reasons. One was it relieved some pressure on the, the 410 campus here. But the more important part of it was that it helped to fulfill our vision of reaching into the community with the good news of the gospel. You'll remember the Mormon temple is up in that area. The Islamic center is there. I mentioned that 25% of our church was coming from the Stone Oak area. And so this gave us the ability for people to invite friends and neighbors and coworkers and those who maybe were 20 miles further north to, instead of driving all the way down to 410, where a non-church person might say, that's too far of a drive, they'll go up here to the 410 campus. And God has been doing some great things over the last two years out at Stone Oak. We've seen 26 people uh, baptized out there. We've seen Bible studies and life groups planted in the community. We've started a mother, uh, Kids Day Out program that is there. We've uh, seen the Word of God being preached each week out there through the satellite venue that is uh, at, at Stone Oak. We've, we've watched God doing many amazing things out in that property. We want to see God continue to grow that campus, to see uh, that that congregation continue to grow in size and reach out. It's what the Trunk or Treat is about tonight, where several hundred people from the community will be there on the Stone Oak campus. But during the last two years, God has been backfilling here at the 410 campus to the point that we're at capacity again. Now, ironically, this is one of the Sundays here in the 11 o'clock where we're not asking you to move in because we need more room. You're kind of looking around going, well, I see a bunch of empty seats, Roger, so what are you talking about? Let me talk about capacity here at our 410 campus. In 2006, Duke Divinity School published a study on what is called the 80% rule. And what the 80% rule says is that when, when there is attendance, regular attendance, this isn't saying like a high uh, attended Sunday like an Easter or a Christmas. It says when average church attendance exceeds 80% of sanctuary capacity, crowding begins and it limits a congregation's growth. Now, at our 11 o'clock service here at the 410 campus, we have been running for the last year at 92% of capacity. So we're 12% over the 80% rule on an average Sunday. Now, let me define what capacity means. There's an architectural standard that allocates 18 inches per person in a pew. So as you look at the pews that you're sitting in, I don't know about you, but I don't fit very well in 18 inches. Some of you may, but I don't. To get an idea of what 18 inches looks like, think of when you fly the economy cheap seats that I'm packed into in coach. Those are 18 and a half inches. Do you like those seats when you fly? 
I was, the Bible tells us not to covet, but when I walk through the business class area, I'm always, oh, someday, you know. <laughs> 18 and a half inches. Well, capacity is defined at 18 inches, uh, which none of you are probably doing. This is where you put your Bible next to you, your coat, you spread out, you start to claim a little more territory than this. Alice Mann, who is a senior consultant for the Alban Institute, wrote a book called Raising the Roof. And in it, she says, when your main worship service reaches 80% of comfortable capacity. Now, you know what she defines comfortable capacity at? That's 30 to 36 inches. That's what most of you are taking this morning. Remember, the architects say building capacity is 18 inches. She says 30 to 36 is about what people like to spread out in. She says, if you exceed comfortable capacity, 80%, you may be pretty certain that you are discouraging frequent attendance by both current members and presenting a no vacancy sign to newcomers. We're far beyond 92% capacity if we use that 30 to 36 inches. So what this tells us is we are at a point where bricks and mortar are blocking the mission of our church because we come together as believers to be equipped to hear God's word so that we can then go out into the world and share the good news of the gospel. There are also people, whether you're aware of it or not, there's not a month that goes by here at Wayside that we don't see people come to the Lord in one of our services where they hear the gospel and they accept Jesus in one of these services. And so if newcomers or those who are believers are not coming on a regular basis, think of your favorite restaurant. If you have to go and every time you go, there's an hour, two hour, three hour wait, no matter how good the food is, there comes a point where you say, let's not go there very often because it's, you just say it's just not worth uh, having to put up with the wait or to get in. And so the opportunity we have is to change the seating configuration in here to increase the capacity. Now, what are we talking about? Well, here you see a picture of what these seats look like. And some of you may have noticed, if you go out into the foyer on the right side of the double doors, there are two of these seats. They're different colors than these. But you can sit in those seats to get an idea as to what they are going to actually feel like and how much room you have. Now, some of the seats we're putting in here are actually bigger than those. Those are 20, uh, those are 20 inches and a quarter. And we have some that will be as big as 24 and 5 eighths. And so if that means anything to you, that's business class versus... They have 18-inch seats. We're not putting any 18-inch seats in here because we want people to feel comfortable. So in terms of what the seats will look like in a configuration, these are, this is actually the Oak Hill Sanctuary here in San Antonio, and this is what these seats will look like in a large uh, capacity as you look at them. We're looking at putting 1,060 seats in here. Now, the colors are going to be different. If you want to know what the colors are, you'll need to come to the town hall meeting uh, on November 11th, we'll have the color palette for you to look at. We'll answer any and all questions that you have. But in terms of what these seats look like, this is how they would go in here at Wayside. So up in the balcony, those of you who are in the balcony, I see you. Hello, they're all waving at me. Um, we are going to actually tear out the entire balcony, take it down to the studs. Those of you who are up there know the floor squeaks. There are mushy areas. You're safe. But we're going <laughs> to... The, the decking in there was, needs to be improved. And as we do that, then it raises the height. There's sight lines. There's all kinds of things involved in this project beyond the seats. Uh, we're going to be adding another air conditioning unit. Some of you know at the peak point of the summer, it gets right at the comfortable line in here. And if you add another 200-plus people into this room, the BTUs, each individual body, puts out are going to require us to have additional air conditioning capacity. So they'll be adding another uh, massive unit. The price on that is $96,000 for the air conditioner. Some of you may be interested in covering the cost of that. So, uh, so I don't have to talk about turn or burn, shake or bake in a sermon. You can say I'm going to provide a comfortable uh, environment. So there will be 256 seats that can fit in the balcony. And then if you change the configuration of the floor and add them in, we'll have a total of 1,060 fixed seats. And then there's the ability to actually drop some additional chairs in for even higher capacity. 
Now, I'll let you absorb that picture for a moment. The bottom of the slide is up here at the, at the platform, and so then you see it going out. Now, one of the things you'll notice is that the center aisle here disappears for the first number of rows, and then there's an open part of the aisle in the back. There is also a change in the configuration around the cry rooms, and so part of what this uh, renovation project would entail is going in and making those uh, two family needs rooms even more soundproof. Uh, if you've ever sat by there, you know sometimes you hear the kids that are in there. Uh, so we will be improving the acoustic uh, baffling in, in those rooms. I've already mentioned the AC. One of the things that you see are these pendant lights, uh, the main house lighting for the sanctuary. I know these are all the things that you don't think a lot about, but they affect our ability to uh, share the good news of the gospel here. If the environment is distracting or things happen, it takes away. If there are distractions, you're not focused on what is being preached. Well, when we renovated this facility back uh, eight years ago, uh, we have been living off pirated parts, what are called dimmer packs, from the previous areas where we took out the old lighting. And uh, we cannot get parts for the main house lights anymore. And so what that means in about another two to three years, the lighting system in here will no longer be able to be uh, maintained. And as we're tearing out all the floor seating, you have to bring in lifts and do things. Now is the time to change out the lighting, which will be an additional $100,000 for the lighting system in the main auditorium here. But if you don't do that now and you come back in three years, the cost will be three to four times that amount because you'll have to go in and remove all the fixed seating and on and on. So good stewardship is to roll that into the project at this point as well. Now, I talked about the capacity of the room, and uh, I told you that it would be 1,060 fixed seats. Now, those of you who are in the architectural building world or safety codes say, well, will that be a tip point that changes the, the capacity of the room? Uh, it will actually, we actually have capacity in this room because remember, this room is rated on 18 inches a person. So we can have more than 1,060 people in this room as it's currently rated. According to building code standards, uh, 13 people are accommodated in a typical pew. And as architect Jerry Cripps of Interdesign says, state building code capacity has nothing to do with comfort or personal space preference. Under the building code, the occupant load or capacity relates to getting people safely out of the building in the event of an emergency such as a fire. In reality, people don't crowd in that close. So that, that is not a factor. The architects have reviewed the code, checked everything, and, and this would not be a question. Architect Roger Patterson, who's designed hundreds of churches in his 52 year, uses 20 inches to calculate capacity. Remember, the standard is 18. He gives two additional inches, and he says a pew seating 12 people at 20 inches per person will average nine persons in the pew. He goes on to say, but if you place 12 individual chairs behind the same pew, with each having 20 inches of space, 12 people will be seated in the space that nine people are comfortably seated in the pews. So you only get an effective rate of 75% of capacity. As I mentioned, with 1,060 seats, what that means is we will pick up over 200 additional, uh, the ability to seat over 200 additional people comfortably in this room. Uh, now, I know you have concerns, like, isn't this going to make a big mess? Well, I mentioned earlier about a renovation we did. This is Sunday, January 3rd, 2010. And if you can take a walk down memory lane for those of you who were here, I want you to look at that picture, and then I want you to look at the, the platform here. This is what our sanctuary used to look like. And if you go even further back, you remember we at one point only had a single screen that would come down on a motor. We didn't even have the two side screens that you see. And we lived through a mess in 2010 that allowed us to move our ministry forward, allowed us to engage our culture, allowed us to use more and more of the technology and tools that are available in this day and age. And this is what we're talking about again. The, the length of the renovation project uh, would be scheduled to last two to two and a half months. Uh, if we began in January, we could finish the project before Easter. Now, another question you may have is, well, Roger, I already have trouble parking. And if you're telling me we can get 200 more people in here, what does that mean? 
Well, part of the problem we have with parking is some of y'all are not using what we already have available. <laughs> we all like parking in close. But if you're not aware of it, we run three shuttles in a continuous loop. They start at 8.30 in the morning, and they stop running at 12.45. And we have two shuttle lots. One of them is at Castle Hills Elementary, which is right up the road. If you're not sure where Castle Hills Elementary is, you go out of our parking lot, take a right on Roletto, you get up to the stop sign at Lemonwood and take a left, and it's right there. And we have shuttle buses that are running continuously that will pick you up and drop you off right at the front door of our worship center. And the second shuttle lot that we have is just over half a mile away at Pape Dawson Engineering. And so if you don't want to take a right on Roletto and take a left on Lemon, get out here on the service road and go down and do a U-turn at West Avenue. Or if you're coming from that direction, you just come uh, up the frontage road. And as you're coming up the frontage road on the other side of the 410 freeway here, you'll see this big drainage ditch. That's the HEB over there, and you've passed this drainage ditch. Well, right past the drainage ditch is Pape Dawson Engineering. And so as you turn in there, you can park your car. Again, we have shuttles that are looping from 8.30 in the morning to 12.45. There is plenty of parking available for you. So you can uh, park out in those areas now and provide more space for others who may come late, or you can begin parking out there. And if you're saying, I just can't live through uh, the mess of another renovation, we have our 410 uh, campus, and then we have our Stone Oak Satellite campus. And they are prepared to go to a second service to accommodate all of the 410 refugees who, <laughs> who want to uh, move up there and avoid the joys of the uh, renovation that is going to be happening during this time if this project is approved. Now, coming back to the cost, because that's something that's very important. The seats for the project are a quarter million dollars. That's $250,000. I already mentioned that there are additional uh, phases we would like to include. Some are essential, rebuilding the decking in the balcony. Uh, we will screw down the stairs. We're going to add the other HVAC unit to increase capacity. Uh, the railing up there will be changed out to meet current building code. It's a very nice see-through glass design. Uh, they, we will be rebuilding the cry rooms. There will be new carpet and flooring, obviously, as everything has to be taken out and changing the configuration of the room. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, changing out the light system as well. So the overall cost of the project, uh, we've talked to three different contractors, and you know we're waiting to go to a final signing of a, a contract, but it, it looks like the project will be between $800,000 and $850,000, and that's a lot of money. But here's the, the great news. As God has been blessing our church not only with growth but the generosity of God's people, we have about $700,000 in hand for the project. So we have the, the resources to move forward. You can clap. Now, some of you know as well that we're continuing to try to purchase the last two Ivywood houses, and we've been approached by one of the homeowners that they're ready to move forward. Uh, that project also had been approved two years ago, and then because of change in family situation, they held off, but they've called us and said we're ready to proceed with the sale of that house. Uh, we have the money for that house escrowed separately from that 700000 that is available, so this will not affect our ability to strategically purchase uh, the next house over there. So that leaves uh, approximately $150,000 that we would like to see uh, given toward this project. And what I would like for you to do is to begin to pray. Uh, to pray, first of all, about the project itself. As I mentioned, we'll be holding a town hall meeting Sunday, November 11th at 2 p.m. Now, that that is the reason we're not doing it next week is we have our women's retreat with more than 100 of our ladies who will be at the women's retreat. So we want the women uh, at this meeting as well if they want to be there. So we're going to do it in two Sundays, and that will be here at 2 p.m. You can ask all the questions. We'll go into whatever details you want. And then we will actually have the congregational vote on Sunday, November 25th. We will be doing that between services so if you're uh, in ABFs or other things, we want you to come in here a little bit early. If you're a, a member, we want you to vote. Uh, Stone Oak will be voting on this project as well 
after their service out there in Stone Oak. Now, I said to pray about it. Is this an opportunity we need to seize and move forward on? And then I also want you to pray about your personal involvement. My family and I have talked about it. We believe this is an essential project. And so what my wife and I are going to do is uh, there are five people in our family. We're going to, you know, I hear people periodically say to somebody, you're in my seat. Uh, (laughs) Please don't do that. You know, if somebody's in your seat, you know what it tells you about them? They have the same great taste as you do. So you should sit down near them, get to know them. Y'all should be best friends, right? Don't tell them to get up and move. But if you really believe it's your seat, here's your opportunity to to buy your seat. (laughs) At 1,060 seats by quarter million dollars, that's about $235 a seat. So my wife and I are going to buy five seats, one for everybody in our family. And then because we also believe that each one should reach one, we said let's buy an additional five seats so that we can provide space for somebody else. Now, I recognize that for some people, giving $50 will be a sacrificial gift. That's a sacrificial gift for my family. We've said, how much, how can we stretch? Because we believe in this. If $50 is what you have the ability to do, that is a wonderful gift toward the project. There are other people here who can buy an entire section of seats as a sacrificial gift. I mentioned if you'd like to buy the $96,000 air conditioning unit, I would love to talk to you. (laughs) And there are people that could do that if that's how God lays it on their heart. I believe that uh, if if the body is ready to proceed with this project, God will provide the resources that are needed. So I want us to go to the Lord in prayer about this project, and uh, then we're going to sing our final closing song of worship. So if the worship team will come out, I know we're right at our time. So after I pray, if you need to go collect your children... You're welcome to do that, but we're going to end with this closing song. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the happy headaches. We thank you that we're in a place where we're dealing with the challenges of creating more space so that more people can hear your word and either come to faith or be better equipped to share their faith. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us, give us wisdom in Not only this, but every project that we do, each way that we steward your resources, each way that we uh, move forward in trying to move your ministry forward, not for our glory, but yours. We pray, Lord, that you would lead your people here in how to vote, how to give, and also, Lord, just in during the project, if we proceed in being friendly and keeping short accounts with some of the challenges of the dust and the renovation that will happen. We thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing in and through Wayside. We pray we would continue to be faithful as your lighthouse here in San Antonio and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Will you stand and sing this closing song of worship, please?